Tere, and welcome to History of Estonia podcast. I am your host, William Parsley, recording from my home office in Anderson Township, Cincinnati, Ohio, USA. For now, but in a week's time, I will be in Estonia for the Christmas holiday. I hope you enjoyed part one of our two-part conversation with Professor Olaf Mertelsmann. In this episode, we continue our conversation with Professor Mertelsmann, who is Associate Professor in Contemporary History at the Institute of History and Archaeology at Tartu University. He holds a doctorate in history from the University of Hamburg in the year 2000. He has taught in Estonia, Germany, and Russia. His main interests are the social and economic history of Eastern Europe, Stalinism, Soviet history, and contemporary Baltic history. He is the author of two monographs, has edited several volumes, and published more than 50 papers in journals. When the Soviet army returned, 70,000 people were said to have fled Estonia to the west by both boat and on foot rather than face life in Soviet Estonia for fear of what might happen to them. How did Estonians that were able to stay out of the war fare when the Soviets came back to power? How did they survive with a lack of food and currency available to buy much needed items? Okay. Uh, the first thing you should know is the priority of the Soviet government uh, when recapturing land, the priority was cleansing. And cleansing me meant that uh, in 1945 and 1944, more people were arrested because of uh, political reasons than in any other period under Stalinism. So we speak about 15,000 political arrests alone. And of course, people were also arrested for other reasons. And if you look into the Soviet documents, uh, cleansing was more important than uh, rebuilding infrastructure or distributing food. Um, so what we see was a big wave of cleansing in addition to Soviet army servicemen behaving like on enemy territory uh, according to the Soviet Estonian Ministry of the Interior most of the um, registered crimes were conducted by Red Army servicemen including rape, murder robbery, theft, everything. Uh, some regional party commissions even wrote to the Central Committee in uh, Tallinn that their stationed Red Army unit behaves awfully and rapes masses of women. Whether, whether Tallinn can't do anything about it. Um, actually, this problem became 
only by the end of 1945 under control. So you have a wave of political cleansing and you have a bunch of uh, undisciplined um, soldiers there. The third development was a quick mobilization uh, and the mobilized Estonians should mostly fight in Kurland. Kurland was under German control until the end of the war and uh, the Germans inflicted heavy losses. Uh, when mobilizing young men into the Red Army during the wartime, there was no proper check of documents made, meaning, meaning a lot of mobilized soldiers have already been veterans of uh, the German armed forces. Um, but what else? Uh, in one aspect, life became slightly better. Uh, Stalin was in favor of a small market economy. So the Germans, in their approach to control food, uh, closed down most of the small markets. And we basically, basically people had to rely on, on black markets and direct contacts with food producers to supplement their diet because the official German rations were about 1,200 calories a day and of this you can't live and no. of this you can't die. So you need additional food sources and uh, most of the markets were closed and to the acclaim of the public that the Soviets reopened the markets, which was, of course, no, no signal for the market economy, but simply to improve, to improve um, uh, food supply. Um, <clears throat> but in a nutshell, um, you also ask about money uh, in those war times, especially in the East, money was not worth much. So we see uh, a return to to a sort of of payments in kind and uh, barter economy and stuff like that. In 44-45, the food situation remained more or less on the same level as under German occupation. So there was no improvement. Okay. The, the only difference was that instead of the German army and instead of German functionaries, uh, the Soviet army and Soviet functionaries were now supplied with local food to, um, in some cases, to an extremely large extent. Uh, instead of money, 
cigarettes and liquor were uh, kind of ersatz money, ersatz currency. And uh, already during wartime, already during wartime, um, Estonian peasants started to distill Samagon, which is <clears throat> homemade moonshine. And actually moonshine was uh, the leading currency on uh, local markets. So you calculate your your prices in moonshine. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. It, but but this is this is a general phenomenon. If you look into black markets all over Europe, it's uh, cigarettes and liquor, which indicate the real prices. It's it's not marks or rubles or francs or whatsoever. Oh, okay. I understand, so, I guess. So, <clears throat> so for a small paper, I researched moonshine production in the post-war period in Estonia. And according to my own estimations, moonshine was the most valuable product of Estonian agriculture for a couple of years. Because, oh, okay. Because moonshine, moonshine uh, costs normally, more or less all over the world, something like half or two thirds of legal liquor. And since one liter of vodka was uh, nearly one hundred rubles, or what you earn in four days or five days of work then a bottle of moonshine was something between 50 or 60 uh, rubles. And with the help of potato, sugar beet, and other stuff, you could produce alcohol. Um, okay. Al alcohol is needed for soldiers. Alcohol is needed for alcoholics. And... Alcohol is needed for people who feel very desperate. And it has a long shelf life, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And and it's easier to, to transport than a sack of potatoes, for instance. Oh. Yeah. So that's, that's the reason why liquor and cigarettes became a sort of the leading currency in, in all those uh, markets, black markets. If we think of urban populations, we don't think usually of large gardens. And during the war and after the war, about half of the urban population uh, received garden plots nearby towns or maybe already owned a large garden. So they could also supplement their diet by producing some food on their own, especially potatoes and and uh, berries, etc., to to get vitamins. And you would also see 
the keeping of animals in towns. And I don't speak about chicken, I speak about pigs and cows. This was only forbidden uh, under Khrushchev. Oh. So uh, 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 a town, a, a smaller town in, in the period of Stalinism meant that people were keeping even cattle there. Yeah, I've never heard milk. about that. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 yeah, even under Khrushchev, some illegal cows were still kept, uh, and I heard the last milk cow in Tartu died in the beginning of the nineteen seventies. Oh. So for so long, somebody had an illegal cow. It's these are survival strategies. Could you describe what collectivization meant for better off peasant farmers or what the Soviets referred to as kulaks in Estonia? Well, <clears throat> collectivization was a longer process. And uh, as a first step, there was a land reform. And uh, the farm size was limited to 30 hectares, which meant if you own more, this land is cut off from your farm. And if you are a social alien element or have served in the German army, etc., then they would cut off even more land from you. Uh, in a second phase, in a second phase, the Soviets, after land reform, the first land reform, 1940-41, a second land reform, 44-45. Uh, in a second phase, 46-47, the Soviets tried to bring Estonian peasants into collective farms by increasing agricultural taxes, which meant higher delivery norms, but also um taxes paid mostly in kind sometimes in rubles and they split the peasantry into two groups into kulaks better off farmers and the others middle peasantry small peasantry you name it but into the group of kulaks, you might get by being richer than the others, by having more cows or more horses or, or being more successful than the others. But you can also get into this group when you hire workforce. So according to Soviet doctrine, a peasant farm uh, on a peasant farm should only work the peasant family. But if you are old, if you are sick, if your husband got shot in the war, then you have to hire some workforce. Right, at you need help. For, for, you need helping hands. You need farm hands, uh, at least for the harvest, 
period. But this also could bring you into the list of kulaks. So you could be a relatively poor peasant and still you are a kulak because you hired labor. And for kulaks, <clears throat> the agricultural taxes were approximately three times higher than for the other peasants. And we speak about uh, uh, tax rates which are maybe two, two average salaries in industry, annual average salaries in industry, which you should deliver in kind or in money as a kulak. So this is a neck-breaking tax rate. And uh, some of the kulak um, some of the kulak families simply left their farm and uh, went to town to, to the towns or to <clears throat> to northeastern Estonia to work there in construction or something else. Because if you couldn't pay the taxes, you would end up in a camp. Oh, okay. So it's 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 not such a nice tax revenue institution like nowadays in the US or in, in Europe that uh, first you pay a fine and so on. No, if you don't pay your taxes, you end up in a camp, full stop. Wow, like, a, like the gulag camp. Well, it, it's not yet the gulag. These are camps for people um, who can't pay the taxes or who who did not follow the labor laws, like being three times late for work or something, or or changing place of work without the consent of your manager. Oh, okay. So it's probably in Estonia. Yeah, yeah. These these camps are in Estonia, but 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 post-war camps in the Soviet Union are nowhere a lovely place. Yeah, <clears throat> wouldn't imagine. So and and other kulaks, other kulaks could keep their farm by being very active on the black market. So with enough moonshine production, you could also pay your taxes. Oh, okay. So <clears throat> But uh, the later trouble was that kulaks were registered and kulaks should be deported then. Oh, okay. At, at the end. Yeah. Well, in, in 1949, 20,000 Estonians were deported. What was the explanation given for the, de for the deportations? And how did they differ in composition from the deportations of 10,000 in 1941. Well, if you look into the sources, then there are two major groups who are deported in 1949. And the major groups, <laughs> I apologize, uh, the major groups were um, 
those who helped resistance or were related to re resistance. So if the family father is known to be uh, an anti-Soviet partisan, his family will be deported, full stop. And okay. if we know, if, if the authorities know that this family has helped Forrest Brothers uh, regularly, this family will be deported. And the second the second main groups were uh, those on the Kulak list. And then they they had also other category categories uh, with conspicu conspicuous behavior during German occupation, etc. So they deported 20,000, but they had a list of about 20,000 27 or 28,000 compiled. So in case somebody is not there, you could simply deport <clears throat> deport uh, somebody else just to fulfill the quota. And those deportation lists were established through modern police work card file systems where you could collect all kind of compromising material on uh, people in Russian so-called compromat and of course you had comprom compromising material on 20 or 30% of the population yeah oh, okay over the time but this helped you to select special categories um of uh so the the normal understanding in estonian society that that uh simply the neighbors were responsible and 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 they sent letters to the authorities and they are guilty or the local party organizer this is not really true um this material was also uh preserved but but the the lists of future deportees was uh, built up with the help of of modern policing techniques and similar card file systems were also used in countries like the US, Western Europe and so on and they were this technique was originally originating from uh, France from the sûreté which is the French criminal police and um, how did the composition differ in both cases entirely entire families were deported in 1941 the heads of the family were then not the heads the in the uh, uh, as a rule mostly the 
the fathers were separated from the families and arrested. And they were thus uh, political prisoners while their families were deported. Um, in 1949, first of all, there were less fathers to be deported. And secondly, um, uh, the head of families, or mostly the fathers, were not were usually not separately arrested in the process and sent to the gulag, but they could remain with um, with their families in deportation. Uh, another difference, due to the extremely bad conditions in the gulag and in uh, in the places of deportation mortality for the victims from 1941 was above 60% while in 1949 mortality was ranking something higher like 20% oh okay which is still staggering but it's a difference so you you had a great possibility to survive in 49. Oh, okay. Thank you for that. Professor Myrtleman, Voice of America began broadcasting in the Estonian language in 1951. This was apparently a big deal as it is prominently noted in all history books of the age. What was Voice of America's message and was it well received? Well, before Voice of America, a lot of other radio stations could be received and they were listened to, whether German, Finnish, or later Radio Luxembourg, etc. Um, the normal radio receivers in Estonia could master distances between 1,000 and maybe one and a half thousand kilometers. But of course, Voice of America was one of the first programs broadcasting in Estonian. Um, although uh, there were some programs by the Germans during the war broadcasted in Estonian, and uh, <clears throat> Radio Vatican also attempted to broadcast in Estonian. Um, but, but of course, <clears throat> Voice of America or Radio Free Europe, this was a big deal. On the other hand, on the other hand, if you have one radio station broadcasting at a certain time of the day in Estonian, then it is easy to jam. While if you have several stations broadcasting in German or in Finnish, you can only or you could only jam one station per time. So... <clears throat> So uh, uh, 
Voice of America was regularly jammed, and this led to a lot of misunderstanding and uh, to a poor quality of transmission and to a lot of false hopes. My colleague, colleague Hilja Tamela has has um, <clears throat> analyzed some of Voice of America broadcasts, which were, of course, also propagandistic in nature and anti-Soviet. But the original protocols from the broadcast did not match uh, that what Estonians wrote into their diaries or what uh, reports on the sentiment of the population reported. So due to the bad quality because of jamming, um, the local population over, uh, over interpreted Voice of America's broadcasts and uh, on regular terms um, rumor uh, went around that at a certain date the Americans will land they will come and invade Sarama or they will they will <clears throat> land at the Estonian coastline and and soon we will all be liberated and stuff like this which was never said by Voice of America, never announced. But uh, the way this jammed media was received, um, uh, brought up a lot of false hopes and and wishful thinking. And this idea of a white ship which comes from Estonian literature, uh, uh, a white ship should arrive to to bring Estonian settlers, settlers to Crimea and Novaya Rossiya in the south of Ukraine, and they would receive land for free and everything. Um, this idea of the white ship coming uh, went on until 1956, and only in by 1956, when um, the Soviet Union crushed the Hungarian Revolution, and no Western power was interfering. Only at that moment, it became clear that any hopes for Western intervention were false, and okay. Western in Western intervention was not only hoped to be conducted by the Americans in the sources. They are also waiting for the British, the Swedish, and even the Turkish. Okay. Turkey, as a NATO member, has, of course, legitimate interests in uh, the eastern part of the Baltic Sea. Yeah. Okay, irony off. Okay. Well, thank you. And... Many Estonians and their extended family from abroad are coming home for Christmas. What was Christmas like in Stalin's Soviet Estonia? Yeah, well, 
in a mostly rural society, um, there are not much means to control uh, what people do at Christmas. And, and in the 1940s, in the 1940s, uh, as long as you have armed resistance and the process of collectivization and, and all this stuff ongoing, uh, the Christmas question was um, of minor importance. What the Soviets did right from the beginning was propagating Det Moros uh, in Estonia Nerivana. And Det Moros is uh, a kind of orthodox Santa Claus, but appearing at New Year's Eve, which also fits better into the orthodox calendar. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they were propagating this, meaning in school, you would have a Christmas tree, but this Christmas tree is not for Christmas, but for Det Moros. Okay. And you would have an official party simply later. Um, this was the only way the Soviet Union could could somehow cope with Christmas. There so was it, no other way. So they they couldn't they couldn't uh, prohibit it. And let's say it like this: the longer the regime is in existence, um, the more people would would fear that they will have some disadvantages when when they have Christmas at the right day um on the other hand there were no real repressions but of course if you want to make a career in the party then you opt for New Year's Eve Okay. And not for Christmas Eve, yeah, uh, like that, and and you you hear a lot of stories that well, uh, of people having Christmas at the right time, but but all the windows are closed, everything is <laughs> is hermetically shut that nobody sees it, but uh, but the the regime had to come to a compromise with christmas they couldn't they couldn't ignore this habit and this habit never died out they just tried to put it into a new dress and actually actually the soviets did it with many things in estonia for instance they fought for a long time at the university with uh old student student habits and old student songs and so on and in 56 the regime came to a compromise and said uh 
all right, Estonian, Latvian students, you receive back your special student hat, you receive back your student traditions like Gaudi Almus Igitur and the singing tradition. And instead, instead of um, of the the main party which the fraternities had in uh, in the night towards first of May, the Komsomol will organize for you a first of May party to replace the old tradition. So, <clears throat> so uh, it would be wrong if we speak about Nazi Germany, if we speak about the Soviet Union, it would be wrong to assume that these so-called totalitarian states were able to change everything and and make traditions forgotten and so on. Very often they, even, even Stalinism had to make a compromise. And I think uh directly after the war christmas was even a state holiday in in estonia oh okay they they had to do it no other way all right thank you um the final question and thanks for your patience dr middlesman uh nikita khrushchev made a secret speech to the 20th congress of the communist party of the soviet union on the 25th of february 1956 nearly three years after Stalin's death, denouncing Stalin and many of his decisions, as well as the aura of his cult of personality, which made him seemingly above the law. How did this speech and its consequences affect the lives of Estonians, or did it? Um, well, there is one little problem. This secret speech, which was not secret, but read out to all party members in the Soviet Union and in, in, in the satellite countries in Eastern Europe uh, was widespreadly known. And I think Voice of America got hold of a copy from the Warsaw Black Market and translated it from Polish into all the relevant language or languages of Eastern Europe, and it was regularly read, uh, read out. So everybody who wanted to, to listen to the secret speech could do so. So it was not secret. Uh, and, and 1956, this is, this is the, the typical date for history textbooks. But reforms did already start as soon as Stalin's body was detected. As soon as Stalin was dead, we have first amnesties, um, uh, favored by Lavrenti Beria, Stalin's hangman at the time. Um, reforms which were prepared under Stalin, like uh, an improvement of the standard of, of living, an agricultural reform, 
and the beginning of the largest housing program in the world at that time, the building of the so-called Khrushchevsky, uh, mostly prefab houses, five stories. Um, all this predated the secret speech. So reforms were 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 felt already much earlier. Um, what the secret speech did was finally denounce Stalinism and up to this date Stalin was was always present. Stalin Jeev, Stalin's alive was a typical slogan. And you would see Stalin in 55 or beginning of 56 still on the front page of newspapers and so on. So if you look into the media sphere, uh, there, seem, there seem not to be much changes. And, and a collective farm could still be named Stalin's Way. Yeah. But... <clears throat> But those reforms started earlier in 56, and the secret speech is just the culmination of it. Okay. But um, also the liberalization in the cultural sphere uh, started earlier, continued longer. You, what is called, What was called later the thaw, after a novel by Ilya Ehrenburg, um, it has not, this thaw does not have a clear starting point and it does not have a real ending point. Yeah. Uh, Khrushchev was ousted in 64, but many of this liberalization developments continued until 68. So, you have a period between 53, March 53, and 68, when the Soviets invade Czechoslovakia, uh, where it was possible to, to speak out more, where you have a huge increase in the standard of living, um, where Books could be published, which could not be thought of uh, before. A day in the life of Ivan Denisovich, for instance, um, but also other stuff. <clears throat> and and for the normal people, whether in Estonia or somewhere else in the Soviet Union, this period meant a return to an, a more or less normal life. You should understand that food consumption per capita on the territory of the Soviet Union by 53 was not higher than under Tsar Nikolai II. Yeah? Okay. Uh, living conditions in many places were awful overcrowded wooden wooden barracks uh sanitation bad no no working 
no operating sewage systems, stuff like this. And, and now you jump out of this poverty and misery, you end up in your it, it in a flat in a brick building or in a prefab building you have a toilet indoors you you still do not have central heating and if you if you go under the shower you still have to to use a bit of firewood or old newspapers to heat the small stove for the shower, but this is a different life. And after a couple of years, your first television set or your first refrigerator, and a, and a couple of years later, a vacuum cleaner. This was a big jump. Um, let's say from a daily struggle of survival of now people could consume on a low level, but still they could consume. They uh, It's day and night. Um, on the example of Estonia, we can also measure the level of political repression. 99% um, of all politically motivated arrests happened in the 10 years Stalin ruled in Estonia. 99%. 1% happened after Stalin's death until 1987. This is a period of... Um, 34 years. Right. This is uh, day and night from a terrorist dictatorship to an authoritarian regime, which under Khrushchev or Brezhnev was uh, sometimes as, repress as repressive as um, some NATO allies or some close NATO friends, and I speak about the regimes in Turkey, in Greece, in Portugal, or in Spain, or about several dictatorial regimes which were close friends with the West in Southern America. Sometimes their dictator being installed by the CIA. So so we cannot underestimate this enormous change from terroristical dictatorship to uh, an authoritarian regime with relatively low levels of repressions. And <clears throat> while, while, for instance, the KGB should arrest under Stalin and sometimes had quota and so on. Uh, beginning with Khrushchev, one, one of the major work, works, the KGB 
had to conduct with those who are wrongdoing were preventive talks. And this is a difference. Whether you are arrested and sent to a prison or whether you have a preventive talk with a KGB officer, well, it gives you fear. Right. But you go at home afterwards and you stop, you, you are simply stopping uh, to make jokes about Khrushchev at the workplace. That's it. And you are not going to prison for this. So this is a real difference. We are speaking about two completely different regimes. And interestingly, those who were Stalin's henchmen and active in mass murder, like Khrushchev himself in Western Ukraine, yeah, maybe 100,000 dead bodies are related to Khrushchev directly, even those understand with terrorism, we don't reach anything. Okay. We need to be moderate. And uh, if you look at Estonia, uh, economic growth under Stalin was extremely small. And for several years, Stalin's economic measures led to decline a shrinking economy, uh, as soon as the re reform started, you see real economic growth, which is not only spent for the Soviet army, but which also arrives at the normal people. So this is a huge difference. Uh, the a very small post-war miracle post-war economic miracle arrived in the eastern bloc and this is as soon as stalin is dead all right well thank you very much <laughs> it's russian and uh it's okay nagamiseni yeah nagamiseni I hope you all have enjoyed learning about Estonian history under Stalin. This Christmas, you can rest assured that your name won't end up on a list for celebrating Christmas in beautiful snow-covered Estonia. If you would like to reach out to me, you can contact me either by DM on Twitter, at ParsleyLL, or you can email me at sparsleyw at gmail.com. Hed yole!